studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, welcome to our Louisiana Eats podcast series, Quick Bites. I'm Poppy Tooker. Have you ever heard of Aura King salmon? I hadn't until I was asked earlier this year to judge the Aura King salmon competition. Aura King is a sustainably raised salmon from New Zealand whose story is almost as delicious as the fish itself. Back in early 1900, two avid fishermen somehow managed to bring live king salmon home to New Zealand from a fishing trip to California. It turns out the salmon love it there, and the rest is Aura King history. Aura King is only available to the restaurant trade, where it's developed a cult following with top chefs like Thomas Keller and Emeril Lagasse because of its pristine quality and flavor. As a judge, it was my job to travel to Austin, Texas, Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles, California to taste the Aura King creations of the top three finalists. On today's podcast, we'll go to Austin, Texas to meet finalist number one, Maya Lee. First-generation American-born to Asian immigrants, Maya is the chef de cuisine at Lenoir, a tiny, charming cottage nestled under ancient oak trees in the trendy Bolden Creek neighborhood of Austin. Let's hear Maya's story, and most importantly, taste the salmon dish she created for the contest, something she calls Strips of Earth. I am um, half Chinese and half Thai. My parents are, um, they came here to the States during the uh, Vietnam War in the late 70s, early 80s. I was born in San Francisco. And um, from there, I grew up in a family that we were very focused on food all the time. Um, Family heirloom recipes and every meal was always thought through. Um, my grandparents lived at home, so they were really the ones cooking all the time. Um, I decided to be going to the culinary industry really to look for a chef. I knew I wanted to open up a restaurant. I did, had no idea I wanted to be a chef myself until I started and I realized how much I enjoyed cooking and creating. Um, and then when I finished school was when I got my first professional cooking job. Where did you go to school? Um, I went to Johnson & Wales in um, Denver. I went to the Denver campus. I went to Johnson & Wales University there. Um, there I learned a lot of the traditional techniques that are taught in culinary schools, but I had no idea that the experience we gained from there was not going to produce a chef. It takes many years after that. Um, it was very difficult to explain that to my parents, who didn't understand why I was making such a low hourly wage, graduating from a private university. Um, it made absolutely no sense, but um, I stuck with it f- until now. I knew that it was something I was going to pursue. I was continue struggling in the ways that I knew were, you know, acceptable in certain phases of cooking. I think uh, it's a very, it's a very um, complicated kind of profession as a young cook. Where did you begin cooking professionally? So you studied in Denver at Johnson and Wales, and then tell me about the places that your cooking career has taken you. Um, I started cooking professionally at Rioja in Denver. 
Um, I was there with Chef um, Jennifer Jasinski. She had just opened up her restaurant. She was a chef from San Diego. Um, she came down actually from Santa Barbara, but um, she opened up her first restaurant in Denver, and I was coming in there. I saw her on the cover of Gourmet, back when Gourmet was still published. <laughs> I saw her on the cover with Wolfgang Puck, who is her mentor. And it was, a, it was a, a, a few, a lot of other chefs, but she was the one from Colorado that was there. And I thought, well, I'm in Denver. I'm going to ask to work for her because I don't know anything else about the chef-driven restaurants in, in Denver at the time. So I wrote her a letter. I didn't get a response. I wrote another letter, didn't get a response. I wrote a letter, gave it to a friend of mine who knew a friend who was working there. <laughs> and there she called me back and she called and asked me to, to go for an interview. She had told me that the experience that I had, um, she could take me as a stage, but not as a line cook because all of her line cooks that she had were sous chefs at other places already. They had all taken a step down to work with her, which I understood that and I was willing to take that. Um, I had started off as a stage for her. The, 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 what we had agreed upon was staging for three months and we'll see where we go from there. I worked as much as I could um, I try to ask as many questions as I could without being too annoying, making sure that I was asking the right questions. And then after about four weeks, I was hired. Tell me about the kind of food you were cooking there with her and some of the things that stuck with you that you use today in your cooking, in your cooking style, and perhaps even in the restaurant management that you do. The cooking that I learned there with her was to have, she had this very California, California Mediterranean style of cooking. You know, that, that was her, her cooking heritage as a professional cook. I learned how to cook pasta there properly and learning how to use pasta water. And that's not something that I grew up with because we grew up eating noodles and you never took the rice water leftover. It was very starchy and sticky. I learned how to cook pasta properly there. Until this day, I still use pasta water to enhance and add a little body to dishes. We really focused on adding fresh flavors, and there should always be a fresh component in dishes, using raw vegetables to pickled, to lightly seasoned, to add, to add another layer of flavor. Um, management style-wise, fortunately, I was there with Chef Jen, who was executive chef partner, then we had um, her business partner, Beth, who was our GM and also partner. And our chef de cuisine was Dana. She was also a partner. And I was surrounded by these three women who were running this restaurant at this tier in a thriving town. That, at that time, Denver was becoming a city. Um, so I watched how they managed people, but at the same time still being very empathetic towards people and nurturing which was something that I didn't see from my peers. That was such an amazing thing to be a woman chef and go to this very female-dominated establishment. That, that's a very unique experience. Yeah. That, that built my expectations for what I was looking for in other places that I moved on to. I had the intuition to understand that they were nurturing me along the way because it would, my family had moved away from Denver, so the only way I would get access to my own mother would be to travel to see her. But they created this environment where they were watching me develop as a young cook, learning how to organize myself, be punctual, 
setting expectations for every day and how to accomplish as much as I could in one shift while still trying to learn how to cook a busy service. That was something that I remember the first day I was on the hotline. This was, you know, staging in the morning, helping with production, working my first day on the hotline. My hands were shaking. I couldn't sauce anything. And that's all I could really do was help plate because I had no line cook experience before that. And then from there, it grew where I was able to work all the stations within a few, like six months. But that was because I was extremely, I, was, I put it on the effort to try to focus, to try to compete with these guys or at least run with them. How many, what was the ratio like in the kitchen? So it, it, there were men working there too. All of the line cooks were men. I was the only, I was the only female line cook. When I started, there was, we had one other female line cook. She had moved on to another restaurant. So all of the line cooks were all men. I was the only one. I was the only female in the kitchen, aside from our, you know, our chef and our chef de cuisine and our GM. In the kitchen, I was the only one. Now, and what year are we talking about? Because you, you said, you know, when Denver was becoming a city. Well, you know, I, I think that happened, you know, a long time ago. So what exactly did you mean by that? What time period are we talking about? I would say about 10 years ago. So I was still in school at the time, and I graduated in 2006. So about 12 years ago, where it was becoming booming and we were getting all of these people moving into our 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 town and you know I I was raised there so I kind of saw that you can go into the city within 20 minutes and there was no traffic as I was in college there there was traffic everywhere now so the the town itself was growing in population and also the culture there was changing when your parents come from Vietnam tell me how you end up in Denver because I'm confused about this um, my my dad came from Vietnam and my and went to San Francisco. Um, he was sponsored into San Francisco and he lived there for the first six or seven years of his life here in the states. My mom came through Thailand and she went to Denver. My dad had family in Denver, so he finally went to visit, met my mother. They got married, went back to San Francisco, and that's how I I was I was born in San Francisco. By the time I was about to start school in kindergartens, when they decided to move to Denver, because it was just too expensive to raise a family in San Francisco. So, when do your parents go? Aha! Now we see what all that yeah. money was about. <laughs> um, they it probably just started a few years ago. Um, my dad still had the conversation of, are you going to find a different job yet? You know, you're getting a little older. We want to see grandkids. I don't know how long you can work this way. And I just said, no, <laughs> I think I'm going to keep going this route. And um, now the questions are, when are you opening up your own restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> so back to that restaurant in Denver where you're working there on the on the line with the guys. Was there an extra layer of pressure being the woman in the kitchen? Um, there was an extra layer of pressure. Um, I was the, I was a lot younger than all of them. They were already in management before they got there. I would say out of the nine guys that were there, at least seven of them were already sous chefs before. So they were way deep into their career. I was just starting out. And um, fortunately, I had the experience with them where they were really seeing the effort I was putting in and they knew that I wanted to learn and everybody was willing to teach me. I was like the little sister to everybody. And that, that is also rare. 
because usually it's very competitive. I've been in other kitchens where it's very competitive within each other. Um, but that environment, you know, really allowed for me to blossom in a way where I understood a little bit more of what my mentality was in every kitchen. And um, it allowed me to focus and, and compete within myself, really, competing to do better than I did yesterday. That's, that's really what the competition was, because I wanted to show that I was retaining the things that I was learning, and now I can take on more, and I can learn more. How long did you stay there? Um, I was there for a little bit over almost two years I was there. Um, I started off as their stage, and then I learned all the stations. I ended up leaving um, to go to Florida. It, I, we had a family um, emergency, my, and my parents at that point had already moved to Orlando. So I moved to um, Orlando to stay with my family for a little bit. And when you got to Orlando, what did you do? You know, my, my younger sister got into a car accident, and um, we had a family business. We had a donut shop. So I had talked to my chef that it was time for me to um, return to my family. I'm the eldest in my family. And I went back. I ran the store for a little while as my mom and my, pa- my dad were taking care of our family. And then from there, I started working for Melissa Kelly. She had um, her restaurant, Primo, which is out of Maine. She also had one in Orlando, and I started working there. And what did you learn at Primo? It was what I found that was really great about Primo was it was a continuation of what I had learned in Colorado. It was also Mediterranean. Um, Chef Melissa also cooks with a very light flair to her food. Usually you think Sicilian, Italian, Mediterranean, it's a little heavier. Um, But she also kind of had these little influences that would make it where you can eat a lot more because it's a little lighter. There's hints of lightness. Her restaurant in Maine is on a farm. It's a little house. She raises her own chickens, her own pigs. She has a full, full-on full farm. And um, the restaurant in Orlando was an off-site of that. And so how long are you at Primo, and, and when do you jump again? That, I was at Primo for, um, I think I was there for almost three years. I started off there. I stayed there for a little bit longer as my sister was still um, getting treatment. And then um, I ended up leaving to after the end of it. Um, after my sister ended up passing away, I did leave. Yeah. And um, I, my, my other sister, I have two sisters, we decided to go and travel together. So we both left our jobs, <laughs> didn't sign a new lease, moved all of our stuff to our parents' house, and then we just went off to Southeast Asia we ate, met family we had never met before. Um, we traveled all around for almost three months, and it was probably the best experience we've had together. We went to Singapore, um, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. We tried to get into Laos at the time. We couldn't get in. <laughs> and then from there, we came back, and we stayed in New York. We stayed in the city for a good three weeks before returning to Florida. Maya, it must have been really an amazing experience. I would like you to tell me how you found the flavors that you grew up with all the way across the seas there in Southeast Asia. And what you must have had some amazing moments of both discovery and remembering. Yeah, many moments. Um, My dad's family is still 
uh, there and my cousins they just had reintroduced us to dishes that we grew up eating you know a lot of similarities everybody has a sauce that um, they have at home that they eat with with anything eggs fish you know so when we got there it's it's a sauce called nukmam and it's um it has chili garlic lime juice fish sauce sugar every every house has their own version and when we got there and we tasted theirs we realized this is why we're family it's exactly the same thing (laughs) um yeah it was it was really great i mean we were eating things that we had here a lot of things that our parents tried to introduce to us while we were here in the states that you know the fruit was better the the street markets were great i mean it was just all of this chaos but it was you enjoyed it you know did you have a sense of coming home yes i did i had a sense of coming home especially when we were with our family it was like we had known each other our whole lives we were so similar in so many ways um when we were traveling out in the city you know it yes sometimes it felt like you were a foreigner but not when you start eating you knew the flavors so you felt like you were home yeah when you personally want to have a taste of home what is the thing that you treat yourself to what is the thing that is the most comforting and home like um curry like red curry and um you know because my dad's family uh lived in southeast asia for so long they have made their own version of red curry with coconut milk and you know sometimes we'll use chicken sometimes we'll use fish but we'll eat it with rice noodles and all the fresh herbs that is a uh, the most similar would be a northern thai kosoi dish but it's just the chinese version is less spicy (laughs) now the things that you've just told me translate into this salmon dish that you have cooked for the Oricane competition. How did you first start cooking with this fish? And why do you like this particular variety of salmon so much? I first was introduced to Oricane salmon while I was in Austin working for Chef Paul. Um, Chef Paul Key, he had a restaurant here in Austin called Key. And he served it here as a salmon butter dish. With a salmon was supposed to eat like butter with some bread that he would make or crackers. Um, from there, we made another version. My interpretation of it was to turn it into a bite. And when I tasted the salmon, I tasted how velvety it was. And the fat content was so high in it, but at the same time, it ate so clean. That was the best salmon I have ever had. Um, till this day, I still think it, the quality of it is just unmatched and it can, you know, salmon usually will have a very strong salmon flavor. I think this is subtle in a way, even though it's high in fat, sometimes you'll get more of that, um, salmon essence from it, but it still eats very clean. I think it's the way that it's farmed. Tell me how the salmon is when it arrives at your door. Um, when the salmon arrives, you know, it comes with, so it comes in, in all of the ice in our cool, in a, a cooler. It gets delivered here. And then we check the, um, near the collar where the gills are for the uh, Aura King pin and stamp. We ch- and then we take that off and we save that. Then from there, we'll have, get, rinse off all the salmon, get it cleaned, and then we'll store it in our walk-in. We, um, from there, to process it, we always make sure that every our whole fish break where we break down the fish is all cold 
Um, so we'll have our Lexans filled with ice, Put a little, we'll put parchment on it, and then we lay all of our fish there. Now, this dish is so visually beautiful and texturally exquisite. How did you dream this up? Tell me about the process that you went through to create the dish. Um, the dish itself for this competition was to be inspired by art. And I, my sister, you know, she lives in L.A. now, and she took me to the Broad, and we went to go look at the um, Elanatsu installation there. From I was just mesmerized when I walked up. It was this huge sheet of metal that was, had, had been weaved together. It looked like it was fabric, but as you walked up closer, you realized it was um, foil caps of wine bottles that he had collected. And that's usually something that we throw away. He made it to into this beautiful art piece that can be hung at, at the you know against the wall. It was huge, and I as I was walking up to it, it reminded me of of fish skin. This metallic changes colors. Is like deeper parts of it, darker parts, lighter parts. As we were thinking about inspiration of art for the the competition that came to my mind because the art piece itself is called strips of earth skin and i think you you think of earth you think of water you think of strips of skin that's going to come from fish now which came first did you see the art and then have this connection after or were you actively seeking inspiration my sister took me to the bar to get inspired because i was kind of going through a creative rut and um the visiting and seeing the art piece came first having it remind me or reminiscent of being fish skin came from that to correlate it into the orkin competition that was just by chance (laughs) it was just by chance that the dish had to be inspired by art and i had this in my memory of like this is what i would think of if i was thinking of something inspired by art for fish So walk me through the technical preparation of this because you've got so many different things going on on one plate. Where do you begin and how does the process go? Um, It starts with breaking down the fish. We save the salmon heads and all of the salmon bones to make a salmon fumet. Then from there, we make the fumet. We um, take off the flesh from the skin the skin is then cooked at laid on a first we salt the skin side we salt it heavily for an hour after that we rinse off the salt pat it dry we put it in the oven for um, about an hour at 170 degrees fahrenheit after that we take out the skin and we scrape off all of the fat and then from there the skin goes into the dehydrator we dehydrate it at 120 degrees um, so, uh, 120 degrees fahrenheit for 48 hours the flesh itself is uh, portioned into three ounce portions. We um, cryovac it with a little bit of um, arbutus olive oil and Thai lime leaves, and that will hold until we're ready to serve. Explain to me how tricky the techniques that you have had to apply to get that dish into the beautiful assembly it is. The hardest thing is going to make sure that the skin is fully dehydrated in order to puff. Um, if it, it's a day with a lot of humidity or it's been raining, it might take longer than the 48 hours. It might take three days, 72 hours. 
So the humidity in the air is going to affect that. And that the difficult part about that is timing. You might, you know, now have to wait another 24 hours for it to be fully dried. The salmon itself, um, breaking it down and portioning it the way we do into a long rectangle, it looks like a candy bar almost, right? Like that size, you know, size of a Snickers bar. That With that, you know, there is going to be a little bit more waste than, than you would want, but we found other uses for that by smoking the leftover salmon scraps, and we use it in, you know, toast bites and stuff for the wine garden we have outside, some more snack-type foods. The um, And then the sauce making is the other component that's going to be more technical. Sous-viding it at, you know, for two and a half minutes, 58 Celsius is very straightforward. You know, if you don't have a circulator, you can oil poach this. Um, you can oil poach it with in a pan, in the oven, set your ovens at home at 170 degrees. You want to submerge the salmon completely in the oil. And if it's at 170 degrees, you keep it in the oil for probably about four minutes or so since it's not circulating the water around it. And that will still give you this silky smooth, barely cooked salmon. Then the sauce making is the other part that may be... I wouldn't say it's technically difficult. Like this whole dish is not too technical. It's more of time, time and being able to nurture the sauce and having the curry really bloom as you're sauteing it before you add the coconut milk because it has to really develop or else you um, it'll taste a little vegetal. The chicharron is also dehydrated the same way, but it's just a smaller piece. And for us to puff it, it has to be dropped in very hot oil. At about 375, between 375 and 400 degrees Fahrenheit, you want your oil. But there are spots on the skin that um, might not be fully dehydrated, little pockets, so that won't puff. So you have to lift from, you know, you have to kind of uh, maneuver the skin in the oil so that the parts that need a puff will be submerged in the oil completely. And then once you take it, out of the oil it'll still be a little flimsy you have to let it dry completely and then it'll be crispy on the radio you know images aren't so good so when you say three ounces of salmon i don't think people can easily picture that what are the dimensions of this three ounce piece of salmon because it's it's like a beautiful ribbon sitting on the plate It's um, so we cut it lengthwise so it's it's about six inches long and an inch wide um and then, you know, an inch thick. So it's one strip of it. It's not the traditional cuts for fish where it's a, um, like a, a stack of cards. Like that's usually what people think of. This is a long strip of it so that we can line it on the dish and have the sauce coming on one side. We take the salmon from there. We um, will sous vide it for two and a half to three minutes at 58 Celsius on pickup when we actually serve the dish. The, um, then we have two sides of the skin, the one that is dehydrated for 48 hours, and we also have smaller pieces of the skin that we fry into so it puffs, and that's where all the fresh garnishes are on. And, and that particular puffy piece is inspired by really a Hispanic thing. Yeah, yes, the puffy chicharron, yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if you deconstruct it this way, how many nationalities and, and different cultures do you think you've got combined on this plate? Um, probably five or six. I mean, I think that if you think about 
all of the things that are on the dish. You know, we have Texas peaches, we have pickled watermelon rinds, which is very Southern. It's um, roasted peanuts. We have curry that's from like a Thai-based red curry. We have coconut milk that we're using as a thickener. Then we're dehydrating it. We're using fish from New Zealand. I mean, all these things, but I think that that's also what makes it make sense because it's an, a dish that's coming from the States and we're just as diverse here. Um, and I grew up here, so it makes sense that this is all familiar to me and it might not to somebody in another country, but... <laughs> the, the sauce, talk to me a little bit about that whole process with the coconut milk and the fat because I, I think that's fascinating and I don't know that a lot of people are aware of how you do that. Um, the sauce, we wanted to make the fumet so that it's a light essence of the salmon. And you can taste that there's, it's, a, it's a curry salmon fumet. So the curry itself, we're using Anaheim chilies, cayenne chilies, sweet red ch- um, peppers, kalangal, lemongrass, shallots, garlic. Um, we turn that into a paste and then we're cooking it down the way you would cook tomato paste down cook that all the way down and then you're adding the fumet to that from there we reduce it down a little and when we add the coconut milk we're separating the fat from the coconut water so you know here we're getting cans of coconut milk Um, you put that in the refrigerator and it'll separate and then you open your can and you're getting all this creamy unctuous coconut fat up top that's and then from there you're when you heat that up you're really seasoning that fat with your salmon fumet. Well, it's exquisite. Now, how did you get to Austin anyway? Why are you here in Austin? We've been to Denver, we've been to Florida, we've been to California. What are you doing in Austin? I, um, my husband, who's also a chef, got an opportunity out here in Austin, and he, we came for, for his job. I was still trying to find my way through to see which groups to work with, which restaurants inspired me, and which ones I admired. So I had staged around a lot of great places here, and I was able to find um, Chef Tai, who's... Um, chef Tai is also a chef here, which he focuses on the San region of Thailand. And that was the first time that I had met a Thai chef doing it at the level that he was. Um, my mother is from Thailand, and, and when I had his food, I remember feeling like I was visiting my mom's side of the family. And I thought, I'm just going to take this chance and work with him. He had great experience before that, and now this was his, his brick and mortar, like his namesake and so I was his opening sous chef there. And then from there, I've decided to stay in Austin. <laughs> One of the things that really strikes me yeah. here at Lenoir is the teeny tiny postage stamp of a kitchen. <laughs> Did you say it's 250 square feet? Yes. Yeah, the kitchen is 250 square feet. The dining room is 900 square feet. We have 30 seats in the restaurant. Um, the restaurant was started by our chef, uh, Chef Todd Doublechen and his wife, Jessica. They started the restaurant seven years ago. Um, you know, they, they were coming from New York, two cooks, um, decided they wanted to stay here in Austin and put this restaurant together and they've made it into such a a tiny wonderful romantic space it's very eclectic it's very austin 
And uh, from there, it just grew, grew in popularity, grew in our guests returning, grew in the food style style that they were doing. Um, from there, they were able to attain the space next door, which they've turned into this beautiful little um, private dining room. And that, that space is called Petit Maison. Now, let's go back to that kitchen that you're managing. How many bodies are in the kitchen with you? We can fit six bodies in the kitchen. <laughs> six cooks and one dishwasher is what we can fit. Um, but every day we have about four cooks. You know, we'll have three cooks every night for service. Um, we have a you know, small walk-in, small storage space. So we get a lot of deliveries every day, little small amounts every day. Um, the, the kitchen itself is, is tiny. The crew is very close. There's only a few of us. It's not a kitchen of 15 or 20. It's um, these six cooks that we have. They start every day off. They prep their own things. We don't have any prep cooks. They work four 12s, so they work 12 hours a day. We give them three days off a week, and we start every day off um, having pre-shift together at our communal table, some coffee, notes from last night, and we talk about how service is going to go for the day and how it was the night before. How do you see the tie between the front of the house and the back of the house working here? You know, the hospitality element is enormous. And how do you balance the two here at Lenoir? Um, the, the, well, it, it's very cohesive, collaborative type of work environment. Um, the front of the house makes family meal every Saturday. You know, that's that's uh, really great because it gives the cooks a day from Friday night busy service to not have to worry about family meal for one day. What in the world does the front of the house cook on Saturdays yeah. for shift meal? This is something new to me. Uh, yesterday they made tortellini soup, which is great because it was raining. Um, and then one of our servers, uh, she always likes to bring in pie. She makes pie from home and brings it in. Uh, and then yesterday they made Caesar salad and they made their own Caesar dressing. So it's, it's every week we plan out what we're making for family meal so that we can get product, you know, produce in for you. Or if you need to find a recipe, if one of the cooks needs to help a little bit throughout the week. Um, one week we had, front of the house was making lasagna and we made the ricotta for them. And, but we had to plan it a week ahead so we knew that by Saturday we needed to have ricotta made. So little things like that, um, you know, they have explored a lot of things. They've done Vietnamese noodle bowls, they've done sandwiches. Um, we've done a salad bar. <laughs> That's so fun. Tell me about your husband and what kind of cooking he does and how it is with two chefs in the kitchen. Um, he, his name is uh, Gilberto. He's uh, his, um, He grew up in, in Queens and he cooks um, Italian, Sicilian. He had also worked for Melissa Kelly. He was actually her chef de cuisine. That's where we met. Um, when I started, he was my, one of our sous chefs. Then I had left to travel and came back, and we, um, you know, just met up to like catch up as friends. So we realized our relationship was it grew from there. Um, and it's it's hard being two chefs in the house. We're never home. Uh, we both work, but we have the same work ethic. We're always at work, and we both have restaurants that are pretty demanding of our time and it's it's been difficult and challenging but at the same time we understand it so there isn't any um you know we understand where it's like sometimes we'll try to meet at home for dinner and we're like oh we just got hit we gotta stay and we totally understand it and there's no animosity because we understand the industry (laughs) so 
do your parents say, okay, Maya, so we're looking for the grandkids and everything. How in God's name are we going to get the grandkids if the two of you don't get out of the kitchen? (laughs) Yes, that's a common question all the time. Um, We don't know either. (laughs) That's that's why there are no kids right now. Um, We're not sure yet. You know, we've talked about it quite a bit as our relationship has grown to this far and you know we think about having a family and I know for him it'll be a lot easier because he is able his his restaurants a lot larger and he has a larger team um, for me it might be a little bit more difficult because my restaurants a lot smaller but I my concern is also how would I be you know carrying my baby and still working the way I do so there would be a lot of things I would have to accommodate fortunately I work for people who are very understanding and who um, understand that that's also a stage of life and they're like whenever you're ready go for it (laughs) so when you dream of the future where is the future and what does it look like Um, professionally I do dream of opening up my own restaurant here in Austin I like the community you know it reminds me a lot of of Colorado too of Denver Um, but just no snow. So (laughs) I like that. And then on a personal level, you know, I would like to have a family and have my home life grow. Um, I think that once I reach a different stage in my career where I'm not running just day-to-day ops, then I can really have that balance. Um, I think it will come in time. Well, I have just so enjoyed this entire magical experience here in Austin with you. Thank you so much for creating this beautiful dish and for sharing all of the amazing bits of it with us. Thank you. Thank you, Maya. Thank you. Thank you. That was Maya Lee, chef de cuisine at Austin's Lenoir Restaurant. If you enjoyed today's show, don't miss our upcoming podcast featuring the other two contestants, Yael Pete of Carasu in Brooklyn and Jonathan Granada of Otium in Los Angeles. Then, find out who wins the grand prize in an upcoming episode of Louisiana Eats. You can learn more about Aura King's amazing salmon and fantastic story by visiting their website, oracingsalmon.co.nz. You'll find a link in today's show notes. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss a delicious serving of Louisiana Eats. Visit poppytooker.com for lots more recipes and delicious food ideas, too. Louisiana Eats original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Thanks to Sarah Holtz, who produced this podcast, and Maddie Molladu, our social media maven. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. I'm Poppy Tooker. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our major sponsors, Camellia Brand, Zatarans, and Rouse's Markets. Visit poppytooker.com to see a full list of our partners. This Louisiana Eats Quick Bite was produced by Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.